you guys are hearing not through our mics, but through the just through the internal mic on the on the Mac across the room. So um, got it. it. You know, it's all it's all shoestring and scotch tape. Yeah, that's pretty much how I do our, our live streams are broadcast from my like Bluetooth headset. And uh, <laughs> I can't imagine it actually sounds very good, but I've never heard the live stream because uh, I'm on it. So oh. I don't really care. It, it's a real problem. <laughs> it's like, a, yeah. you know, it's like a, you need a mirror. Yeah, exactly. But you can't exactly. look at yourself in the mirror after you've, you know, you're always looking at, you know, have you ever tried to look away in a mirror and see what you look like when you're looking in a different way? This is why it's a good, that's what, this is why like in the movie uh, Dolores Claiborne to prove mm-hmm. that she's really going nuts, they show her seeing the back of her head in a mirror. Ooh. Cause mm, it's like deeply, that's yeah. like deeply disturbing. <laughs> the idea yeah. That oh, that'd be freaky. Oh, nice. That'd nice. Be freaky. Nice reference. I yeah, haven't thought about that movie in a long time. Well, you, you if know, I saw the back of a white guy's head, uh, I would just lose my mind. Just, <laughs> instantly go insane. You know, in your last episode, so so uh, I don't know if we're going to do. Are we going to do a pre-roll? Are we going to cut this up? What are we going to do? We got the first Mondays guys on. This is yeah. really exciting. It's amazing. This is really exciting. But on your last episode, you guys mentioned Richard Feynman. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're when you're trying to decide what to call this excellent segment, yeah. you have, which I want to come back to, by the way, I've got great some ideas, yeah. but. Uh, uh, um, and, and you mentioned how Feynman had this thing where he would read the abstract of, and, and then, and then basically kind of back out all the results yeah. from the article, uh, <laughs> yeah. which, which works pretty well in law too, actually a lot of the time, but, yeah. um, absolutely. I think you could probably just fill, uh, you know, everything after the abstract and introduction and a law review with just lorem ipsum. And I think maybe 2% <laughs> of readers would even know. <laughs> yeah, although, although the introductions to law review articles are often as long as, articles and other disciplines that's right yeah well we, we are a, Fair we, point. we are a dialogic rhetorical dialectical discipline so you know it, yeah it, it's all, all about that. like you know that's the show that's why you guys have you know it's all about people kind of talking sometimes especially in the context of our show ad nauseum um mm-hmm. i think literally wouldn't you say joe or ad delirium in any of it so this is a very long way around for making a very small point but richard Feynman also was uh, had this great uh, video where he talks about this great kind of physics question to ask students, and that's you know why in a when you look in a mirror is it are things only reversed horizontally? Ah, uh, yes, vertically? I love that. I love that. Yeah, because um, because the answer ends up being because your eyes are oriented horizontally, right? No, no, <laughs> I don't. Think I don't remember right. this video very well. It, it's the I way just guess yeah, the answers. Yeah, because then problems. you could just turn your head and it would change, right? Exactly, like, exactly, and it, and it doesn't. It has to do with the fact that that the the, the way that the way the mirror is representing the world, I mean, you're kind of seeing yourself through the, you know, it's as if your eyes were on the other side of the mirror. Ah. But uh, anyway, I don't want to get, because I'll get it, I'll get it wrong. It's one of these where, you know, you think you yeah. understand it, you start to explain it, and then maybe you go down the wrong road. Kind of like, you know, if, if, in, if on a runway, um, you had a conveyor belt, which is running at the same speed as the airplane, would the airplane right. take would, off? Would the airplane take off? Yeah, I remember this was a, a lively debate on Reddit for like, three, you know, intense weeks one summer. Uh, and I remember it was really fun to read along uh, because people were quite passionate about it. The only thing I like enjoyed more than that was there's a uh, there's a bodybuilding forum thread from like 10 years ago. Bodybuilding thread? Ian, do you even lift? <laughs> <laughs> and Ian, this is our job. Our job is to engage in very nuanced and complex conversations and thoughts. Well, when I was a math student, you know, I was at the very early days of the internet. I remember one of the first great web pages I found was was one which advocated for the six day week, 28 hours, mm. 28 hour days, six days per week. Oh yeah. And yeah. And, so like a pure lunar system of some kind. Well, I mean, I think it's, it has to do with, you know, like most nonsensical things. It has to do with like circadian rhythms and it has to do with, 
Um, yeah. Uh, and, and there were, the, the person posted, you know, it was kind of pre-forum, like there were no, I guess there right. was some like CGI scripting kind of stuff, but there wasn't a lot. And so as people wrote in, they would kind of add people's comments to the page, like manually yeah. through HTML. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And one, one of, you know, so some of the comments are like, how great would it be to, to go outside and see stars during the day? Um, mm-hmm. You know, some days it would be stars when you're going in and some days it would be sun and but this actually works out. But if you put people down in, 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 a, in a tunnel, in a deep cave, mm-hmm. you know, the, the claim is they would get on this 28-day, 28-hour um, uh, cycle. There's an XKCD comic about, that advocates for this mm-hmm. that I think it, it's, a, it's appealing to like engineer types like me because you always feel like you're staying up late. And right. so the idea here is you, know, you could stay up for 20 hours and still sleep for eight hours uh, and the whole system just works. Yeah, there's just more time. That's yeah. what, that, so that was one of these internet comments was farmers would have more time to grow their crops. Eventually, eventually the furrow in my brow is going to start aching because I haven't unfurrowed since we started because this is all so fantastic. This is this is a terrific conversation. It is. So it's been great having you guys today. Um, Yeah. Thanks for having us on. (laughs) And I now have a good show. Good show. (laughs) My to do list has now includes mirror verticality. (laughs) Well, so in in the early days of our show, we were talking about like I, I knew that like if you wanted a show that would light the legal podcasting world on fire, just, mm-hmm. you know, set it ablaze, it would have to be a, a show which is, has kind of our sensibility, Joe, not, not, to, yeah. not to toot our own horns, uh, but I'm, I'm about to untoot it, so but it's okay. Beep, beep. It's, it's about, well, it's about to untoot. But it would be about stuff that's, that's interesting to a much broader group of people, right? So we talk about especially nerdy stuff and papers and academics, so we're a little bit more academically oriented, but a show mm-hmm. about the Supreme Court which gets into it at a level of deep, you know, which is just a conversation between people who know what they're talking about. So yep. that excludes Joe and me right yep, away. Totally. Uh, would be, would just set the world on fire, I think. And, and you guys have done that. I mean, that, this is yeah. what First Mondays is. It's, it's amazing. Well, yeah, that turns out to be right. And I actually sort of feel like we had it easy because it's, in retrospect, such an obvious idea that um, the fact that we still have this whole field all to ourselves it's kind of unbelievable to me. Like before we started doing this, there were zero podcasts that did this. Now there's one. And, you know, it's not like there's a huge barrier to entry here. You have to know what you're talking about and you have to have at least, you know, a microphone. Uh, but it doesn't have to be a very good microphone, uh, as we've repeatedly demonstrated. <laughs> um, so, See, yeah. I obsess I, over that stuff. But some of my favorite podcasts are like the Flophouse. I mean, you know, half the time, mm-hmm. you know, something goes wrong and they're recording off the internal mic on one of their computers. And you, know, yep. you listen anyway. But, you know. Yeah. There's one guy on uh, my favorite podcast, Chapo Trap House, who uh, Matt Crispin seems to be recording. I think he's always like being recorded via Skype. Uh, and also the, the connection is uh, literal string from his house in Wisconsin. <laughs> yeah. uh, it sounds horrible, uh, but and I, I just don't care. I, I mean, I, I'm with you. I really want the audio quality to be high, but it's amazing what I'll put up with. Yeah. I mean, as a listener, I, my tolerance is very high, but except when I'm listening to my own show, I'm like, well, that, that sounds terrible. You do complain a lot after the fact <laughs> about the sound quality, which I, and they all sound the same to me. I don't hear mm-hmm. any difference. So yeah. you're the true audiophile. I, I, I guess. But yeah, the, the entry barriers are pretty low. We did have one idea for a show, which I, I want somebody to steal. I've wanted students to steal this for a while, which is, um, which is a series of like five minute podcasts. You remember this yes. series, Joe? You remember the name of it? I don't. Summary Judgment. Mm. Oh, I it's, like that. It, it's a little bit like your QP Richard Feynman segment. Um, yeah. Where, but it's a case which has already been argued, but maybe not decided, although maybe you could have decided cases. Maybe, maybe, maybe at the opinion stage. I forget what we originally came up with. But, I think it was at the opinion stage. But you know, the core insight is that 
most of what we do in law is not that hard. And you could explain the, like why people are fighting within a couple of minutes and then mm-hmm. give the, the major bullet point, you know, uh, arguments and pro and con within another couple of minutes. And then you can kind of come out with what you think. Summary judgment at the end. I, so yeah. like a six minute segment. Yeah, maybe six minutes. Maybe six yeah, minutes. I, I like that because I'm a sucker for a good name. Um, I feel like, <laughs> you know, once you've got a good name, it's almost just worth it to build a show around it because you don't want it to go a waste. Absolutely. So when did you conceive of the name First Mondays? Was that before or after you conceptualized the content? Definitely after. Um, so, yeah. you know, is Ian's idea to do this this podcast. Ian actually, he often gives me a hard time because I don't listen to podcasts um, nearly as much as he does. And, and so we sort of just started shooting it around. I don't really remember... You know, I think mm-hmm. we were just sort of riffing on phrases associated with the Supreme Court. Yeah. You know, first Monday in October, and then somehow uh, we settled on first Mondays, which which we like, although I think in, in retrospect, um, probably not the best idea to pick a name that kind of commits you to releasing the new episodes on a particular <laughs> day for, for all time. Because yep. it's now the thing where, you know, if, you know, there's some weeks we're off where the court isn't doing anything, and we don't release an episode because we're you know, not doing these, you know, 52 weeks a year. We do a lot of episodes, but we get, you know, like... 10 people, you know, a minute sort of being like, where's the episode, guys? Where's the episode, guys? Uh, yeah, it's which true. Is, which is a little, you know, which I, I like that we have fervent fans, but it's a little annoying. And yeah, your fans it, are called firsties. And this yeah, is another firsties. great advantage of the name is that it, it comes with a, a, a nice tagline for the, for the fan. Like, we, we don't call our fans oralies. No, and, and I don't, that's I don't a think that would be anything. <laughs> call, call, uh, call them oral advocates. No, we could call them argies, but... Um, uh, Mm. Yeah, mm, I, I think that's the best you could do uh, in terms of a fan name with with what we've got to work with. I think we just yes, yeah. that's why we just got to stick with friend of the show, the generic friend yeah. of the show. Yeah, yeah, friend of the pod, sure. But the, uh, yeah, but Dan, the, only, the only thing, so the only problem with so oral argument once we settled on our name, it seemed like the right name, and yeah. once we kind of got the little graphic together, it's, that that seems right. It seems right for what we're doing. Just like I guess first Mondays may have seemed that way for you guys initially, but I wonder, like one of the things about oral argument is. If you just Google oral argument, you know, you get a bunch of stuff. And if you Google yeah. oral argument podcast, you do tend to get us. But there are other, you know, there are other podcast series based on actual oral arguments. So it's mm. kind of difficult to kind of figure out, yeah. like, is anything going on? Do you get that with First yeah. Mondays or is it distinctive enough? Uh, it is distinctive enough. Yeah, it's distinctive, but our search engine optimization is pretty bad. So <laughs> this, is, oh, this is on our long-term list of stuff to fix. But like, I think if you Google Supreme Court podcast, I, I'm not even sure. Dan, are, are we even on the front page? We're now like number nine on the list. So we're doing better. So something is working. But uh, yeah, we're, we're a little bit harder to find than I want to. And if you go to the if you go to the iTunes store and Apple and you type in Supreme Court podcast, I don't even think we show up there at all. So yeah, that's bad. we need to we need to we need to work. We need like one of those SEO, those like scammy SEO consultant guys. <laughs> yeah. That charge we, a lot of money. Exactly. We need one of those characters from Silicon Valley to like become real and join First Mondays. Yeah, mm-hmm. but you, you got to set up you got to pay someone to set up like a thousand different websites which look legit and all link to you because yeah. then your page rank goes up, you know, and, and so it's all scammy. It's all gross. Yeah. And, and the but, other thing is, that, you know, a lot of our listeners you know, started you know, back before the podcast explosion. We were kind of just on the cusp and and have not really ridden that wave well enough, maybe. <laughs> but but uh, um, so so a lot of them don't use iTunes. Mm. And, oh, interesting. And, and, what do they do? Well, I mean, they use Overcast or something else. All, I mean, all well, of the right, podcast right, right. apps are yeah. like parasitic on the iTunes library, which is the canonical right. library. And it's mm. and, and so far, Apple has been a good steward of that and hasn't you know done anything which would disable that or or cause problems. Uh, but what it means is that you know, when we say leave an iTunes review, 
like that's the only way to kind of get visibility through that general catalog is to leave a review or listen through there. So our iTunes rank is is not as high as it would be if everybody used the the podcast app. Yeah, it's true. It is a problem. Um, we uh, for a while we were trying to compete in the like I think it was the like news category uh, of iTunes, and we were just getting basically annihilated. Oh, so you're going uh, up against like Fresh Air and and uh, yeah, and exactly, and, and, and like Pod Save America and all those guys, yeah. and so. Dan's uh, core insight uh, pretty early on, I think, was, you know, why don't we switch to government and organizations, um, which because <laughs> you know, like what can possibly be in there? Uh, and it turns out we were actually able to climb those charts pretty fast because it's, you know, I mean, it's it's what you'd think. Like you hear that name and you're like, Ugh. but uh, but it, we, we, I mean, at one point we were like number two, I think, Dan, right or three, something like that. Yeah, although the, the the reason that this works, Ian, is because no one else has figured it out. So uh, way to way to broadcast that to the world. <laughs> yeah, well, to all the uh, government and organizational podcasters out there, little pro tip for listening to oral argument. Yeah, this is the kind of consideration I had, you know, almost four years ago now, first putting the thing together, and it's it's one of those little decisions you make, and that that turns out to matter. But like, there was no way for us to get in that, you know, because. While we do talk about courts, we talk about other stuff too. So I think we're in society philosophy or something like that, mm. which you think That's would give good. us an open, clear field toward um, domination, yeah. but um, turns out not. <laughs> yeah, not. Yeah, did, did, you, see, did you see who's number one in government and orgs these days? Uh, is it still uh, still our friends at More Perfect? No, it's a, it's a relatively new entrant um, that that I'm surprised you're not listening to. Oh, what is it? The Bernie Sanders Show. Wow. Oh, wow. wow. You know, I, I do listen to that show, but I didn't know that he was in that category. Well, now I'm now I'm honored to share the category with the burn. I mean, is, that's pretty exciting. Does it, is it called the Bernie Sanders show? It is called the Bernie Sanders show. What a yes. missed opportunity for all kinds of burn related titles. That's, yeah, that's, not, that's, that's astounding. That's just not on brand for him. I know, but that's just not on brand for him. He's just a sort of like straightforward dude. Um, he's right. not really. Yeah, know, although, I mean, they had feel feel in the burn, right? That was a thing. Or burning that, flame. I mean, that's what you'd call it, right? Burning flame. Because uh, yeah. you know you're going to go on some rants. Yeah, it's almost like back in the old days, it could have been called burn to disc. Mm-hmm. Something like that. But So the, 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 the key conceit Bur- would be... Burning it's not, man, yeah. Oh, nice. Which one? Was burning man. Oh. So, <laughs> so, but the key yeah, conceit see. would be, I think, to make it work, is it's, it's not Bernie who's like... Although it would be kind of cool. It would be like one of those old SNL skits with Ronald Reagan if it's actually Bernie doing the logic and the... Uh, um, mm-hmm. And the mics and all that and doing all the mixing and insisting on the sound quality. <laughs> that would be kind of funny. But but if uh-huh. the conceit is that it's somebody else who's running the show, like, and like Bernie that. is the interlocutor, then you could call it something like that and it wouldn't be off brand for him because it would be somebody else doing it. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that'd be pretty good. Um, yeah, it's sort of a funny show. It's like him acting as the interviewer um, of his guests, uh, which I sort of enjoy because it's it's weird to have this like sitting senator and former presidential candidate essentially hosting a radio show. Um, but he seems to enjoy it. So, you know. Recommended. And who does he talk to? Uh, just all sorts of different guests. Uh, it's a different person every week, um, you know, sort of like act, various activists and, you know, politicos kind of on the left, um, you know, talking about the very, you know, the. You know, I, I'm sure that, uh, you know, given the uh, uh, perseverance with which he prosecutes his issue campaigns, I don't have to sort of like, you know, rattle off the specific things they want to talk about. But, um, you know, it's pretty good. They're, they're pretty short podcasts. Um, you know, they're more in the half hour range. Uh, than than the long range. Um, but it's interesting you guys have been doing this, by the way, for four years. 
uh, because I feel like there is a a difference in the sort of DNA of shows that started like a few years back versus more recently, because I've been listening to podcasts literally since you had to have a separate client to sync them to yeah. an iPod. And yeah. you know, I was in college. Yeah. And so as a result, I feel like my expectations and norms for podcasts are different than people who started more recently. So like, I don't have a problem with podcasts that are like three hours long. Um, <laughs> I really did because, you know, yeah. I listen to a lot of podcasts and they're just they're really long. And I don't have a problem with that. Um, but apparently a lot of other people get very mad. Uh, like with, <laughs> with we, when we go over an hour, which we almost always do, um, yeah. you know, people get mad about it. We had we had people in the early days insisting that we should have a set time, you know, that it there were some people who that said it that. should be an hour exactly or something like that. And, and I, so I think there are that, ways that, that makes no sense. I mean, that's one of the whole advantages of, of the medium is that we don't have to be constrained by that. But, right. you, but you don't understand that until you spend some time with a podcast app listening to podcasts that show up and then you start to realize the advantages. Yeah. And, and of course you listen at different speeds, you know, you know, famously mm-hmm. I listen at two X Joe listens at 1.5 X and, and Ooh, with smart X. speed on overcast, wow. like, you know, so that's, you know, it, that's hardcore. There are waves to this thing. So I, when I was in, Law school. I actually, so this was when um, iTunes was first released, I think, or around that time. And, uh, and then the iPod comes out. And of course, you immediately, once the iPod comes out, you're like, I want to listen to like, there weren't a lot of podcasts. I think Adam Curry's thing had not even gotten yeah, going yet. It was like but, Adam Curry and that was yeah, pretty much it. But, but there were, um, but there were plenty of shows that started to like stream online through that god awful real player. Um, uh-huh. uh, like, um, you know, uh, NPR shows I would listen to, you know, like all yeah. things considered. And then they, some of the Saturday morning shows and things. And I wanted to listen to those in my iPad. So I actually wrote this app, uh, that would like use the, you string all these things together, uh, in Apple script that would like on a schedule, like launch a uh, real player, uh, launch, oh, wow. uh, launch the, um, uh, web browser, go to the website, play the thing, record it, and then send it to iTunes. So that all the things were there waiting for you to sync up. So it was like, um, it, it was called streamers and it was to try to create like a, a podcasting thing for you, but I didn't call them podcasts at that point. And then podcasting yeah. took off and then it got better, but it still was like a, you know, Ian, I think you and, and, and I, and some, maybe Joe, maybe some others were nerdy enough to, to think, okay, well, I'm going to subscribe to these things through RSS and I'm going to sync them up to the yeah. iPod, but it's really yeah. the phone. The phone is the inflection point. Totally. It really was. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, because it it finally made it possible for a person who was not interested in playing with like third party RSS readers and like right. syncing stuff like it, it removed the whole need to like sync a thing, yeah. you know, like once you've eliminated syncing, you've made it possible for a normal person to do it. And also, I think the other big thing that I think is underappreciated, especially by me, uh, is the ability for most modern cars to like easily hook up to an iPhone and play stuff in the car because right. if people commute. It's a big deal. And, you know, it's if it's a pain in the ass to sort of get the podcast going in your car, people aren't going to do it. Um, but now that every single car can sort of hook up via Bluetooth or whatever, uh, I think that's been a big, big help. I remember the first time I got into a car and that and that worked seamlessly and it just started playing. And I was amazed because I just assumed that anything having to do with any user interface in a car would be is terrible. It's going to be awful. Right. Yeah. And so I totally. assumed you'd have to go through menus, you'd have to set things up, you'd have to enter a code. It just and it just worked. I was amazed. So I think if you put the last ten minutes together, oh I think God. what I think the question you really have to be wondering is, Dan, what the hell is wrong with you? Why don't you listen to podcasts? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm a busy guy. You know, I like books on tape. Actually, I listen to a lot of a lot of books on tape. I feel like that's a good way to, um, you know, increase your consumption of books. Uh, I do like. Some podcasts, but they tend to be sort of ones that are quite different from what we do, which are the sort of more heavily produced, you know, NPR style ones, you know, know, love serial, things like that, true crime, things like that. 
Um, but you know, I, I'm starting to appreciate the medium now that now that I'm participating in it on a regular basis. I have to say, I listen to a lot more than I would if I didn't listen at a higher speed. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, sure. I, I I never even thought about doing that. It seems like cheating. <laughs> it does. <laughs> and I have to say, when I first started, so I listened to uh, a number. Of, so I think that during the second wave of podcasts, when when um, people, you know, when there started to be more of the um, breaking outside of the pure NPR shows. And, and then, mm-hmm. and then you get a lot of like two guys in a microphone podcast, kind of like what we do and which are conversational and, you know, without mm-hmm. the goofy stuff, you know, um, stingers and bumpers and all that. Uh, and, and then now we've got this kind of third wave of, of bringing back the production values, but mm-hmm. taking advantage of the podcast medium. Um, mm-hmm. uh, um, so, so I remember early on though, I listened to these tech shows where they were really, it, the production was awesome. They sounded great. And I had a, like almost a purist take against listening at two X, I thought I would miss something or, or anything more than one X. And mm-hmm. I quickly have gotten over that as there are now too many shows to listen to. So, um, and yeah. I have to say, bring it back to the Supreme court a little bit. When you listen to a Supreme court oral argument at two X, justice Ginsburg sounds like it sounds like a normal conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. I bet it does. Yeah. That's an interesting idea. Actually. I'd never thought about listening to the arguments yeah. at higher speed, although that's a really that's, good idea. That's smart. Because that's smart. It's do very either of you smart. guys use Overcast as your listening app? Oh, I do. Yeah. I've been on Overcast since 1.0 when you still had to like pay for it because right. I love, um, I've, I've been following Marco Arment's work yeah. forever. Uh, like I was like a, an Instapaper guy way back in the do day and all that stuff. Analyze? I do. I've, I've listened to Build and Analyze. I listen yeah. to Accidental Tech Podcast, yeah. um, ATP. Uh, no, wait, so wait. So, all right, because the smart have, speed, the smart speed, and yeah. then just dialing it up. You don't even have to go to two X, which I don't do because it it sends me into a panic attack um, <laughs> mm-hmm. because everyone's speaking so fast. But if you just if you notch it up one or two ticks, it really yeah. it, it it makes it go much faster, but sounds quite normal. But if you notch it up one or two ticks, or if you notch it up like one tick every like month or two. It's not true. Yes. You end up getting into That's 2X the, and it's fine. And then, and then when you listen the at regular speed, you're like, oh my God, the, you know, why is everybody yeah. so dumb? <laughs> and I have different settings for different podcasts. So like, like Chapo Trap House is more of a comedy podcast and I feel like it depends on timing. Same yeah. with the Flop House where, you know, I don't want to mess up the timing and pauses and beats of jokes. So I also have the like um, mm. the smart speed off because I yeah. want those, po- like those pauses are part of it. I want to hear the pause and the beat. Right. But, you know, something like a, a you know, a sort of chit chat show like when i re-listen to first mondays uh which dan does not do he's probably never heard the podcast one time uh, but <laughs> i always listen to the show uh I, and i always have it like you know turned up on the speed do you know i when i so i edit the shows and when i edit it's at one x and i'm always like oh this this is not great this is you know and then mm-hmm. um often then it'll land in my podcast app like everyone else after i push the show out and i'll be walking the dog i'll say i wonder how that sounds and and it'll be at my regular listening i'm like oh that wasn't so bad after all <laughs> So how long, how long does it take you to edit the shows? Cause I was editing the initial shows before we brought Melody, our producer on, and it yeah. was really taking me a long time, but I assume you've gotten pretty good at it over the years. Well, I, so I have a really, I, I try to keep it live to tape so that, but uh, you know, earlier on I was doing more editing of taking out ums and ahs, especially of the guests, rarely with us. Cause I, I you know, I want to make, I want to make it so mm-hmm. that the listener's getting in a, you know, an efficiently, you know, uh, listenable show and, and I want the guests to sound great. And so I was doing, and, and when I do that, it, it can take, you know, several hours to do a one hour show. Yeah. Um, but now it's, you know, if, if I'm, if it's live to tape, I'll just have to kind of listen through and take out stuff, which is, uh, you know, distracting, um, but I don't edit yeah. for content at all. And that's like one X this just to make sure there's nothing that I really, and, and also I'm doing show notes along the way. And for our show, right. that's kind of, you know, I know most people probably don't, don't follow them, but 
uh, one thing I've said a, a lot is that since we have so many academics on talking about articles and things, it's a great resource for student papers. So if you've got a student who wants a topic, you go to one of our shows, they can oh, listen to yeah. it or not, but like there are a whole bunch of links so there. So go to the show notes. They'll yeah. get you started. And um, so I, I think it's a great resource for that. So I, so I do spend a lot of time on, on that, but it's like I said, maybe 1.5x. I'm 1.5 times the, the length of the show. I think one mm-hmm. thing that's definitely helped keep the editing to a minimum is that my filter against cussing is, is effective um, because uh-huh. I would naturally cuss quite a bit um, in conversations of this nature that we have, which sometimes get quite disputatious. Um, uh-huh. but, but I'm able to restrain it effectively. So Christian doesn't have to go in and take those out. I've bleeped it out a little bit because I would rather not mark the explicit thing if I don't have to. Right. Yeah. 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 We've, we've, uh, I've, there have been instances where I have forgotten and where we've just sort of like run, basically run the gamble and make sure that, you know, we don't get, cause I don't exactly understand. Like somebody would complain to the iTunes store and then they would listen and hear that I, you know, said yeah. a swear yeah. and they, yeah. you know, yeah. think, think of the children, Ian. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I am. I want them to have a robust vocabulary. It's the first blow theory. You know, you got, you know, you're listening to this in the car as one does. Yes. I, look, I have to say, I put on our show in the Pacifica car. Pacifica is all the way. That's right. You know, the family be driving along. They'll ask me to put something on. And of course, I reach for oral argument. If I'm, not, if I'm not reaching for sure. first Mondays, I'm reaching for oral argument. I put it Appreciate on. Appreciate that. And, and I do it just for the groans and the, you know, the dads and then the, <laughs> the, and, and the, and the cursing in my own family that it engenders. Ah, so right, that's, right. Well, that's different. That's fun. That's fun. But, but if, you're, if you're driving along and you got kids in the car, you don't want that first blow. No, hmm. that's true. Yeah. 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 And I, it is true that I've got uh, one thing that's been told to us about first Mondays uh, that I don't know, um, you know, look. I put this in the category of I'll take it is that apparently it's pretty good for putting babies to sleep. Um, we have, we have a couple of friends with new children and they've said that like, it's, it's a very soothing, it's soothing enough that like babies will fall asleep to it. And I'm, you know, it's like, uh, sure. Would I prefer that every person who listens to the show be awake a hundred percent, but you know, I'm not picky. Uh, just get those download numbers. That makes me think we should put a warning on our show, Joe. There should be a warning that if you have small babies, Listening to our show might put you to sleep, but keep the kids up, and that's a dangerous situation. Nobody wants that. Yeah, well, I'll leave that to, to your supervised. discretion. Yeah, maybe, maybe so. Should we talk about some substance? Well, yeah. we're gonna cut all this out, right? Oh, yeah, I'm gonna, <laughs> cut, I'm gonna cut all this. <laughs> yeah, let's start the show. <laughs> let's okay. Let's start the show. Let's see uh, levels. Level check. Okay, no. All right. So, so Joe um, has pointed me to your uh, this excellent paper um, about the lottery, the, the lottery docket, which I have to, so. A lot's been going on this week. Do you know my, my son is actually picking a college today, mm. later today. Wow, congratulations. And, well, wow. yeah, it's, uh, it's a long process. <laughs> and, uh, and I've been out of town, so I have not read the paper yet, but Joe described it to me before we started. But I thought before we got there and we could work our way there to the lottery docket, yeah. I, I want to get do, your do, take. Does anyone, read, does anyone actually read, read these papers? I, I, I not only read it, I was so wow. engaged by it that for the very first time in oral argument history, I made a page of notes. Ooh, uh, with wow. the issues, wow. questions, and concerns I have about the paper, I never do that. Wow! And and That's so when good. Joe, so I always we always read the papers and we really get into them uh, when we when the show is about a paper or about a topic. And when Joe heard that I had not read this paper, um, he would. Well, I'd say he was as angry as with me as he normally is, which is very angry. <laughs> <laughs> I think. But but I I think I've got a handle on it. But I thought we could work our way there by talking about this Garland Gorsuch fiasco. Sure. Yeah. There's, there are some things to talk about there, for sure. And Ian is actually the person who I think has said one of the smartest things about it. Uh, in terms I'm listening. Of, <laughs> <go on. laughs> I thought that it would get your attention. Uh, simply that uh, the, 
the latest move is never the last move. And I don't know why that hadn't occurred to me before I heard him say it, but, but, um, but it's, it's yeah. you know, it, it is a very powerful, uh, piece of advice, I think about just about how this is going to unfold in the future. We don't know what the next move will be, but we know there will be a next move. Yeah. That's the thing is that I think there's a, a, a and I saw this all through, you know, during the Obama years and also during the late Bush years that like there was this tendency to evaluate the wisdom of eliminating some procedure or taking some step as if, you know, just the cost and benefits of that thing without pricing in anything about the future. And I'm like, at this point, I've seen this story enough times to be like, that's definitely wrong. And, I, and again, it's, it's always sort of impossible to know. Like, I would never have guessed, for example, that the, the Garland blockade would be the next move after eliminating the filibuster for lower court nominees uh, during the Obama years. Like, I just wouldn't have been able to think that that would be possible. Um, so it doesn't have a lot of predictive power, but I do think there's some explanatory value in it. Well, well, well although Ian, that could have happened even if they had never removed the filibuster for liberal court nominees. I mean, maybe that made them feel, Republicans feel more emboldened. But yes. given the stakes, not obvious they wouldn't have tried something regardless, right? I agree with that. Um, but I do think that there were there were people like Lindsey Graham and other Senate institutionalists. And I don't regard those Senate institutionalists as always behaving in a totally rational way. But I do think that they they really do exist um, as as evidenced by the fact the filibuster lasted this long um, and not always for sort of short term, short term strategic reasons. Um, but, yes, I agree with you. But I do think that once that was done, a further escalation was inevitable. And then. Um, you know, here we are. Do you think that these rhetorical institutionalists like McCain and Graham, are they in practice institutionalists? I mean, are there things happening behind the scenes that where where that kind of, you know, um, straight shooter, middle ground, non-ideological portion of what we sometimes hear in rhetoric actually becomes a block to something that uh, goes down pathway that the Senate Republicans went down with respect to uh, I, I, Garland. I think I think so, because they got the sort of compromise compromise group together uh, in the Bush administration, right, when there was a, mm-hmm. an, one, another one of these sort of big conflicts over a bunch of court of appeals judges. And they some people sort of in the middle. The gang. Uh, what was it? Was it the yeah, gang, the gang of, of 14? I think? 14. Yeah. They, they got together gang and they said, some, OK, we'll give yeah. we'll give you these guys, not these not these people. And we won't, you know, do anything else. And that's the compromise. So. Um, and, and my understanding is that there at least were some attempts to pull something like that here to save the filibuster. But in this particular instance, it's kind of zero sum. And there's really, it's really binary. You know, do you put yeah. Gorsuch on the court or not? There's not really a compromise, especially once the, the nominee has, has been made. I mean, and related to that, you know, I've had a lot of people say to me, you know, there, there wasn't even a potential compromise nominee because everyone is either on blue team or red team. There, are, there aren't people especially these days, you know, who are plausible candidates for the Supreme Court who are not, you know, right. declared members of one of the teams. Yeah, I mean, this yeah. is one, though, where the, where the appoint, where the nominee was was one who the Senate Republicans had had begged for Obama to send earlier in yes. the administration, right? So, right. Uh, yes. so th- there's that. I mean, to me, this represents the complete and utter destruction of norms uh, governing yeah. um, Supreme Court nominees. I, I think it's over. I think it is, too. And if you... If you think about it, the, the, um, the Supreme Court has not had a nominee confirmed by the opposite party of the president since 1991. Um, and there's no reason to believe that they ever will again, because why would you? Well, um, well it, it's worse than that. It's not just as there's no reason to believe. There's every reason to believe it will absolutely never happen again. Yeah, exactly. And 
and, and this is driven sort of this is a conversation that Dan and I have been sort of kicking around for a while is, you know, what what would a rational response to this dynamic be? You know, in other words, if we just take the political dynamics and pressures uh, as a sort of feature of our politics, do we have to have this sort of like dysfunction or could you build a court system and a Supreme Court in particular that was like designed to be functional and uh, and and work even with this was uh, even if this is a dynamic? One thing I think about a lot, for example, is, you know, we don't we don't see this kind of uh, crisis on the courts of appeals uh, because vacancies in the courts of appeals aren't as important because they're big courts and they just do uh, randomly selected panels. But you could easily imagine running the Supreme Court that way. You know, imagine a 15-member Supreme Court that usually sat in panels of five or seven with a with an in-bank process if necessary. That would make any one nominee sort of right. like not that important in the grand scheme of things, and it would make any one vacancy not that important. Uh, and so this kind of political tug and you know tug of war uh, would still be part of the system, but it wouldn't matter as much. I think I think I'm kind of attracted to that idea. Dan, wouldn't isn't there a proposal like that that you mentioned in the paper? Someone else's proposal. Um, yeah, there there actually have been a couple of different proposals to sort of refashion the Supreme Court in the Court of Appeals uh, image. Um, uh, trying to remember, was uh, it Allison Orr? That's I don't think that's Ali Orr's proposal. Let me. Um, this, Someone this, this it is, was that very specific, like fifteen with panels of three, kind of. Um, I'm pulling it up right now. This this is the scary thing about being on a podcast where I know you guys <laughs> don't edit anything out because on our podcast I would just seamlessly go to this. Yeah, um, in the post production, and it'd be like, oh, he just had that <laughs> uh, on the tip of his tongue. Um, yeah, well, it's it's not your proposal, so it's it's not a big deal that you don't recall it. Of course, I don't remember a lot of the things that I cite to and talk about in papers. Well, let, let me so, let me just let me. I, th- why, I think why you look for that. I, so, I think it's yeah. the uh, Tracy George and Chris Guthrie. That was it. Yep. Yeah. Piece. Yeah. Well, so I was just going to say that, um, you know, given I, I'm not as sure, Joe, that that had the shoe been on the other foot, the outcome would have been the same. I think there's directionality to the um, willingness to destroy norms, um, despite that so-called mm-hmm. Harry Reid rule and all that. And so I, I don't necessarily well, I want do to get too. into that. And a lot of the, a lot of the Lindsey Graham institutionalism, I, I think is rooted in, and you know, the, the it's okay if you're a Republican and not, if you're a Democrat, there are certain things they think they get to do and that they own and that uh, other people just need to sit down and be quiet for. Yeah. I mean, we don't need to go into all well. that, but, but that said, you know, we're where we are now. Uh, like I said, there are no, there are basically no norms left. I think it was, you know, the, the idea that the Senate will police its own constitutional obligations is is gone. If if there's a textual argument for it, it will be it will be made. And yeah, uh, and and so there's no reason that I can conceive why the, why why the Democrats, if they get back into power and they have a president, wouldn't just appoint more justices. Why wouldn't you court pack? There's no, there's nothing. Yeah. There's nothing I agree in the Constitution to prevent. Totally agree with that. I agree with that. And I and I think that's appropriate, by the way. Like I I think that that like we, we we're in this, you know, we've had nine justices for so long uh, that we sort of just treat it as a sort of fact of the constitutional order, but it isn't. And given that it's, you know, this is a point that Dan has made repeatedly on our show, it's kind of crazy that we, we have so much that hangs in the balance on, you know, basically random chance yeah. uh, or, you know, the sort of health of elderly people or their sort of like decisions to retire or not. Uh, I mean, that's not very that there is no reason that a sort of self-governing republic should just accept that as like you know, this like aristocracy that we just have no control over. Like, no, like the yeah. way the courts work should be responsive to what kind of country we want to have as reflected by elections. I mean, that's- yeah, no, no, nobody would design this uh, from the outset. They just say, OK, we'll have um, a bunch of old people 
who, you know, are selected <laughs> at random times on, you know, depending on who happens to be in office and when they die. And they just will decide, you know, about a third of the really most important social and political issues that the country faces. Like, why so, would you do yeah. that? I mean, and I think that's this is the best argument for which kind of takes some of the um, some of the target off of the Senate Republicans is that, you know, if Scalia had died a year later, we would be in the same place we are now. So there's like nothing there's nothing kind of naturally baked into the universe which suggests that Obama should have had that appointment other than that Scalia died a year earlier. So so yeah. the, so the, the general problem is the one that you guys point to, right, that the kind of the with, with nine, the, the vagaries of of human life and various kinds of incentives operate in weird ways to produce a court of nine, which is supposed is supposed to represent broader right. political preferences over time. And, and, right. and the thought is maybe it's not doing it's not doing it so well once justice has become identified with a particular even if, even if you use like uh, Balkans, like high politics term, but a certain like high poli- high political position, uh, yeah. th- then then it become then the game theory becomes, you know, kind of overwhelms that that smearing out over time idea. So, yeah. you know, and, if you if you did increase the court to, say, 11 or 13, maybe even 13 is the right is the right number, because because then uh, and then you uh, and then the appointments occur in year one and year three of every presidential term. And the, so you're sort of combining these ideas that are out there about having an 18-year term so that every other year there's someone rotating right, off right. and therefore mm-hmm. someone getting put back on. And the issue is how long do you have to maintain the presidency in order to dominate the court, right? And if it's, right. if it's, uh, if it's 13... But this only works if the Senate majority that is not of the president's party uh, will actually confirm people. And I think the root of this, of all of these right. problems, I think, is... When you put the Senate in the confirmation role, it's the fact that the Senate and the and the President can be of different parties. So if that weren't right, true, you right, wouldn't have any of these right. dysfunctions. So, so my and I'm not finished with this yet because I'm not sure how to make it work in the end. But my my proposal would be to move to maybe a court of thirteen or eleven. I haven't, you know, I think you can think about how long you want the President to have, how how long you want a party to maintain maintain control to to control the court. But uh, where the President nominates in years one and year three of each term. And the, mm-hmm. the Senate has to vote affirmatively to reject. And after... Uh, rather ah, than vote right, positively to right. confirm. Okay. And, and after the a closed rule vote, like, um, and, and uh, no, um, uh, no filibustering. So you'd write the threshold right into the constitutional amendment. And, right. uh, and then um, if the Senate rejects three, then maybe um, the president, unless the Senate affirmatively nominates one of the three, the president gets to put any of the three on the court. Something like that. Like what you need is a default rule and maybe even a penalty default, which results in presidential choice in the face of Senate Mm -hmm. inaction. That's interesting. Um, I'd be be sort of curious about the incentives for nominee selection, given that, you know, you're going to get. So it's like, all right, well, let's see here. We've got like Goodwin Liu, uh, you know, um, you know, Bernie Sanders, 19 year old counterpart uh, who's just graduated, you know, just just started uh, college uh, and, you know, some third person. Uh, But I think that's a potentially interesting idea. And and one thing you could do, though, is you could make qualification like so you could you could put some content in there about grounds for rejection. And you might even be able to make some qualification issues justiciable. I don't want to go too far into this because I think it's it raises all kinds Mm -hmm. of all kinds of problems. But it's possible that you could do that. But but one of the other things that makes this work is decreasing the wattage of each appointment. You know, I think that's key. You decrease the wattage a little bit. You create some defaults or penalty defaults. And maybe, you you know, you're never going to get 100 percent of the way there. But, you know, it it at least like grapples with the fact that we just can't rely on norms anymore. I I think I think. 
I think the panel system, though, seems to be like maybe the most important thing to think about, just because even if you have 13, there's still going to be situations where it's clear that something turns on, you know, the seventh vote, right? Like, mm-hmm. like whether abortion is going to be a constitutional right turns on one particular nomination. And so at least in a wouldn't world you, where... Wouldn't you in-bank one of those decisions, though? I mean, you, yeah, panel... I'm not sure the panel system can solve that. Um, yeah, I, that, that's yeah. the problem. Yeah, is I mean, that... if, if there's, yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on whether there, there really is, uh, you know, you don't, you don't have to have an in-bank system necessarily. You could just say, we're going to let this be decided by chance. Um, that would lower the stakes of any particular nomination. It would make it more likely that, you know, any particular issue would come out in one direction or the other, but wouldn't guarantee it. It would be, it would be a recognition of our kind of, uh, it, it would be the, the exaltation of our ex- existential angst about the nature of the universe, right? To say that the next abortion decision will not just be a function of who is on the court, which, which 13 people are on the court or which 11, but the mm-hmm. throw of the dice or the drawing of the lots that constitutes the panel of seven or nine that will actually decide the question. It would be a recognition of yeah. the role of random chance in our, in our quantum yeah. universe, and I, I, I like that. <laughs> right. Well, and the other possibility, by the way, and this, this kind of starts to get sort of nudge us up toward what Dan is writing about in terms of you know, we also take for granted that the Supreme Court has a sort of unlimited docket, uh, substantively of its own choosing. Uh, but that too is is just that's that's not a un, unyielding feature of the constitutional order. You could change that. You could decide we're going to allocate some issues for judicial resolution uh, and not others, just by defining the jurisdiction of the federal courts uh, and things like that, and and moving away from a system where the Supreme Court can decide any question of law that it wants and only those questions of law. Uh, that it wants. Like that too is a product of democratic choice, popular control. Uh, but we often don't think about it that way. It's talked about in terms of, you know, jurisdiction stripping, which sounds bad. Sounds sort bad. of like, yeah, yeah, it doesn't yeah sound before good. we get to Joe's page of notes about this, um, <laughs> I mean, don't you think though that the, the political, again, to use the word wattage will still, will be there no matter how you shape that jurisdiction, no matter how you, you know, even if you went to like a like Texas, like a, a court of criminal appeals and then, a, then another court, like even if you divide the Supreme Court into two or three or more entities, like wherever that abortion decision lands, the political wattage will Well, that, is, that assumes it lands anywhere. You could, you could imagine a world in which, um, you know, the, the uh, resolution of, you know, certain substantive issues um, is just not left to the courts anymore. Uh, it'd be obviously, that'd be a pretty different world than the one we live in. Well, this is just um, a Scalia's you, world, right? Uh, well, yeah, but you could you could enforce that through legislation, right? You could say we are going to sort of settle the abortion question uh, with the sort of following compromise, and courts are, do not have jurisdiction to entertain challenges um, to the legislation that implements this. Like you could just, I mean, that, that would actually be done nationally, right? So like Texas couldn't decide, obviously, that, that they weren't going to consent to the jurisdiction of like the Fifth Circuit on this stuff. Uh, but you could imagine something like that, and I'd be surprised, frankly, if. Uh, you know, if we come, assuming that the Democratic Party is ever in control of the government again, uh, I'd be pretty surprised if if they're coming in with a very conservative court and knowing what happened with the Affordable Care Act, if they're able to pass major social welfare legislation, it would almost be like sort of malpractice to not at least consider shaping the court's jurisdiction to consider challenges to that legislation, right? I mean, especially if you've got a very conservative court, if, you know, Justice Ginsburg leaves the court and Justice Kennedy leaves the court by then, for example, um, you know, you could well imagine that. And, and why not? Yeah, the exceptions clause really gets it needs to get taken out and run around the track a few times, and uh, yeah. so that people figure out what's the smartest way to do this. Mm. Yes, you're absolutely. Right. Thinking, not thinking that through would be problematic. You also can just—they used to do this, just like cancel sittings. They'd just be like, October <laughs> term, 2018 is canceled, and the court yep. just like has nothing to do. They're just sitting around. 
Yeah. Um, go run the Smithsonian. For even longer. But has that been done since the Great Depression? I don't think that it's been done anytime recently. So, um, I mean, in the but, age of the court as a as the particular kind of institutional check that it has become. No, um, definitely not. But I mean, that's the point. I think we may, you know, some of these things that we thought were off the table, you know, are back on the table. And that's, I, you know, maybe that's good. Maybe it's bad. Um, but, you know, courts only work so long as, you know, as as sort of neutral decision makers, so long as people are willing to let them do what they do. And once, you know, things change, one thing that's that's really interesting is that we're probably going to see, you know, if Justice Kennedy leaves the court, we really will see in the next few years for the first time in many decades, and I'm trying to think when this was true last year and probably maybe never, a court in which ideology completely perfectly tracks party affiliation of nominating president. Mm-hmm. That hasn't been true for a long time because uh, Justice Kennedy sometimes plays against type because you had Justice Souter, who basically was was a liberal, who was nominated by a Republican mm-hmm. president. Um, and I think that that's... Justice Stevens. Justice Stevens, very much. It, it's really going to look very different to be in a world where we you know, have Democratic justices and Republican justices, and they really played a type. And I don't think people... I don't think that's a world that we should be excited about living in. Mm. Yeah, agreed. And I think the person that's going to make especially uncomfortable, by the way, is the Chief Justice. Uh, because I really do think he is a real judicial institutionalist. I, I think that is not a pose. He's he's genuinely concerned about the place of his institution in American government and cannot possibly like what he's seeing. And what would be strange if Justice Kennedy, for example, were placed with a much more conservative justice is the chief would then effectively be the swing vote. Uh, mm. Now he's he's a very concerned. I mean, he's a conservative justice. And so I'm not going to say that everything's going to remain exactly the same, but he would really be in the driver's seat in terms of those, you know, closely divided five, four cases that always exist. Um, And, you know, we saw, for example, in in this decision last week, in this, you know, kind of housing discrimination case, he was kind of the swing vote. And I saw a lot of people discussing like, you know, this might be the sort of future where, you know, if you need to get the chief, if you're those four liberals um, uh, or you can't win. Um, And so that's obviously a very different world than the one we live in, but it might be one we're heading to. Is there, is there, Kind of a, a, I'm just thinking out loud here. Is there a kind of judicial equivalent of what we're seeing with the Affordable Care Act dispute playing out? So, you know, you know, my feeling on the Affordable Care Act, you know, especially given its origins, is it's basically if you want to cover a lot, if you want a lot of people to have health care, and you don't want medical bankruptcies, and you uh, and you don't want um, uh, um, you know huge amounts of human suffering arising from from ill health and, and bad luck. The most conservative solution to that problem is probably Obamacare, probably the Affordable Care Act. And so any mm-hmm. attempt to any attempt to kind of legislate to produce similar results, you're just not going to be able to do that. It's like fighting against gravity to try to create a conservative, more conservative bill that has the same effects. And mm-hmm. and so this whole, you know, but there were there were political benefits to being against Obamacare, or there there were, and now they're running against up against the reality that actually to enact these to enact new policy is to you know, be in a way politically destructive. And I wonder, you know, so much of the, uh, the, the Federalist Society project, um, and I don't, I mean, yeah, I don't know, it, it is a reaction to New Deal, um, New Deal compromises, kind of the, 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 new role, the new role of federal state relations, the new role of, mm-hmm. uh, of the court in resolving core, um, I won't call them like, you know, they're not like political values um, that are, uh, like the Congress deals with all the time, you know, issues of tax aid, but these are kind of core liberty values, the kind that Justice Kennedy 
writes about touringly, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the abortion right, the uh, right to gay marriage, you know, all of these uh, right, and the the right to uh, be read a Miranda warning, which you know upheld as kind of a uh, pragmatically rather than as a, mm-hmm. a, a so all all of these things that we think of as as kind of basic liberties and the basic kind of liberty compromise and the compromise over the role of the federal government, the administrative state. Um, there has been a move against it. And I wonder once you get to the point where you have the power to undo a lot of that, you know, when you have the, ah. the fifth vote, the sixth vote to get rid of the Miranda warning, to, um, mm-hmm. to really put teeth in the commerce clause, which I think is in its own way, swimming against gravity, you know, to try to return to the direct indirect distinction, all these things, which didn't work, but the non-delegation mm-hmm. doctrine. Oh yeah. So once you start and undoing Chevron and trying to find other ways to undo the administrative state, um, once you have the power to do that, do you do it? Um, because you're quickly going to run into you know, the question. effects of that, right? Um, so yeah. I, yeah. Are you ahead. really ready to, you know, so for, I mean, are you really ready, for example, to, and I think that here, I mean, it's the classic example, but I think it's true for a reason is, are you really ready to permit significant restrictions on abortion? Um, because, you know, that, I mean, that would really affect, uh, a sort of kind of a revolution, uh, in American life, if it were possible for, you know, large swaths of the country to, to outlaw abortion. I mean, if you're willing to do that, uh, then, you know, that is not going to be something, you know, overruling Chevron. Okay. I don't think they're going to be demonstrations in the street. Um, but you know, an effective overruling of Roe and Casey, uh, I think you would see, you know, like, uh, ACA slash women's March level, uh, demonstrations with that, and is the court really prepared to sort of go there? Yeah, I've been talking uh, and, with friends yeah. about that as well, like a frank overturning of Roe. Like, what what is the court's best play? I mean, they, uh, just let me interject to say yeah. there are some people who, if they were sitting here, would say that that that, that the, we're already there. That that the the number of state statutes that have passed trap laws and other things that make it difficult for clinics to remain open, um, et cetera, mm-hmm. that that we're already at a place where there are many people I, I living in jurisdictions where the the right in row is effectively non-existent i just don't so, think that that's a that that's kind of a judicial stable well point, this is what right? you said frank overruling yeah like so if a, you, fr- a frank overruling i think would unleash an absolute you know um i was about to cuss but an absolute yeah. storm right an yeah. absolute storm of protest of, of the likes of which we have not seen in modern america and swift stat swift state statutes uh, completely prohibiting and criminalizing abortion well, it's in some states and i and yeah. i think that would a, a, but, but i think you would re, see people on percentage. the you'd see people on the streets and and civil disobedience of a way we've not seen in a very long time in the united states stuff that would like dwarf the women's march in terms of its right. size and and so and bring it back to action. the question you were asking before which is what like should would a, would the justices actually do it yeah so like because i think the abortion one is, is a good one to think about this because this like uh, you know affirming trap laws and and allowing states to kind of sneak up to the edges like it was overturned in uh, whole women's health in texas like i don't think mm-hmm. that's a stable point in other words you can't i, I don't see yeah. a judicial philosophy other than the o'connor kennedy pragmatism right which is just a we're going to find the center of america american politics and and land ourselves there right like reconciling in a weighing kind of way, libertarianism and women's rights versus like state's interest in religiosity. Like all of that, we're just to put it in the hopper and that's the way we're going to come out. Like you can kind of keep setting that center point, but once you have ideological views in uh, which are dominant on one side or the other about either women's liberty or um, uh, sanctity of life, et cetera, et cetera, then I don't see how one of the, this political compromise, the O'Connor-Kennedy-Casey compromise is a stable point anymore. And if it's not stable, what happens? Yeah, I've heard, I've heard a lot of people say, oh, you know, the Republican justices are really smart. They know that the, it's better for them to keep 
sort of row alive, but sort of on life support because, you know, it'd be this huge, they would, the Republicans would lose this big um, chip in elections that gets their base out. But I have another friend who's sort of a a conservative uh, Republican who's deeply opposed to abortion. What he said to me when I sort of made that argument, he said, well, look, um, there are some things you do to get in power and there are other things you get in power to do. And that for the people that are really worked up about Roe, it's not just about the results. It's it's about the fact that it is deeply offensive to them that this is something that has been enshrined into law, uh, that it is an abomination to say that this is part of constitutional law. And that, you know, he took the position that, that someone like John Roberts, if given the opportunity, really would say, no way, we have to get this off the books. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. Damn the consequences. And I, I don't know. I think I don't know if that's. I don't know if that's right, but it's not obviously wrong to me. And so, it's, you know, you can't just assume that they'll they'll do this sort of backhanded strategy yeah. um, of sort of trying to chip away at it without ever saying no. Yeah, the, the sort of I guess the, the counter argument, which we should at least air is, you know, there's a substantial sort of academic literature that argues that the court is, is pretty good, actually, at staying to that sort of center point in American life. Like, you know, Barry Friedman has his book, The Will of the People, which defends this at length. Uh, and this sort of precise mechanism by which it happens, obviously, is always a little, you know, that's that's contested and contestable. Um, but I think that there is at least a reasonable case to be made that, um, you know, if it really got right down to it, uh, the court and, and the court knew it was about to, to be majorly out of step uh, with American life. It would be in line with the court's history, uh, which is, you know, not to say anything, you know, past performance does not guarantee future <laughs> results. Uh, but, you know, and we did see, you know, shades of that with like the Affordable Care Act uh, litigation where, yeah. you know, the chief, by all reports, maybe got some cold feet and, and wasn't really going to go there. Um, so I think it's at least defensible that um, they could continue to find the sort of center point in American life in the way that they have done successfully so far. They, so they I might, know. but we, we, they might also decide the Dred Scott of women's rights. And yeah, and, and that's that also is, possible. And I think that's not, uh, you know, I mean, cases aren't analogous in every way, but I think it's not, uh, you know, the court does misstep. The court does yes. do things which have dramatic political consequences um, that they don't Very always true. predict. So Planned Parenthood against Casey was itself, my recollection is it w- was itself sort of a surprising um, uh, turning away from taking a, a step people thought they were going to take. Uh, mm-hmm. Definitely, and at, a t- at a time when it was much more imaginable, I, I actually think the the political. I think it would have unleashed you know fiery controversy, but these days, I think but, you know um, two decades on or more, it's. I, I think the yeah. of, it would be much much the, the blowback would be much much more more powerful. Yeah, the lawyers for my understanding is that the lawyers for Planned Parenthood actually were pushing the court in oral argument in that case in Casey. To sort of say, you know, this is just a straight up or down question of whether to overrule Roe because they wanted it, you know, if, they, if the court was going to do this, they wanted to have it before the 1992 election, mm. um, if I'm remembering correctly. I might be thinking of the wrong case, but I think it's this one uh, because they thought, look, the court is just on this glide path to overruling Roe, which after all back then was, you know, it was only 15-ish years old. Uh, and they, they were like, you know, if we're going to do this, then let's just do it ahead of the presidential election. And they got surprised uh, when, uh, when we all learned about the, uh, the sweet mystery of life. <laughs> Should we let's talk about the lottery docket for a few minutes before we have to cool. wind it up? Is that well, all right? Yeah. So, well, wh- I guess one question, um, and and again, I I've got a page of notes to choose from here, but but uh, <laughs> this is it's scary. Just, it, <laughs> it's a fascinating uh, project, and and it's um, I I rarely, as I'm reading a paper, think about 
the 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 sort of comment paper that I want to write in response that that happened again too uh, with with you uh, in this in writing this paper. But um, so, so one question might be as as you proposing the notion that we uh, uh, create a portion of the court's docket that isn't certiorari based, but is you know twenty to forty cases that are chosen. Um, at random from final judgments in the federal courts of appeals. Um, one question would be, if it's such a great idea to decide a percentage, to have a percentage of the court's docket uh, uh, configured in this manner, uh, and part of why it's a good idea is because of the imperfection of splits as a proxy for importance, and part of why it's a good idea is because it promotes accountability for the lower courts. And, and another part of why it's a good idea is it provides the justices information about what the day-to-day work of the lower courts is like. If all that's true, uh, why shouldn't the entirety of the court's docket be lottery-based? Randomly well, chosen, yeah. Yeah, you know, so, so, and I guess I could, you could make a concession to, to reality and say, okay, so the court's jurisdiction is going to be comprised of two things. Um, one, uh, any lower court, judgment that invalidates a statute on a federal ground, and you could include preemption mm-hmm. as well, not just constitutional uh, uh, grounds, uh, but preemption, which is in a way a constitutional doctrine as well. Um, so any, any, any uh, lower court decision invalidating a statute uh, on a federal constitutional ground uh, gets an appeal, and everything else is lottery. What's the counterargument, Dan? Well, so... Our position in the paper is that, you know, cert doesn't get all of the important issues. It's not that none of the issues that are chosen through cert are are important, right? I mean, so I tend to think that the justices do an okay job, just not a perfect job with cert. I think if you get rid of cert, there are a bunch of issues that are important that might not get there quickly enough. Yeah, but we just spent a bunch of time process. but we just spent a bunch of time talking about uh, political issues that I think w- wouldn't exist. If, yeah, oh that's a, that's interesting. That's that's, that's, that's interesting. fair. So that's fair. and it's sort of and so you know this particular paper is one that's not you know concerned with solving that problem, but that would yeah, that would I like the idea. I mean it would make the court a very very different kind of institution. It would make it an institution that was more focused on error correction, uh, less focused on uniformity, and certainly a court that had no ability to pick its own cases would be one um, that would not be, you know, the justices really wouldn't have an agenda in cases that they're looking for the way that they do now. I think some of the justices, you know, in particular Justice Alito has, has basically talked about this in speeches, saying that there are things that they want to do and that they're looking for uh, in the cert docket, um, and then the cases are sort of just vehicles for them to get at issues they think are interesting. That all goes away. And um, certainly, you know, uh, post-2016 election, I'm finding that idea a little bit more attractive than I might have when we first conceptualized this paper. And that, that agenda-setting authority is, is exactly why Richard Posner, Judge Posner, says that the Supreme Court is not a court. I mean, it's, it's one of the key, he's got several different arguments, but one of them is that exactly that they right. have, like a legislature, the ability to, through cert, because they have so many cases and they can pick uh, from, from, from a large number, they can pick a small number of cases from a large number, they can basically pick which issue to work on, and, and an institution with agenda-setting authority is not a real court. Now, the abortion issue gets there anyway, as soon as a lower court invalidates a state statute. Right. 
on constitutional grounds uh, under the model I just suggested, which was there's an appeal right and then a lottery box. Uh, so, so some issues are going to get there anyway. Um, uh, the the same sex marriage issue. So maybe my maybe o- this Obamacare actually, Obamacare gets there. Um, on the commerce, it did. On the yeah, commerce it does. Cost. It would. Yeah, well, well, the question is, that's another question though. If it gets there on commerce, but you have several different attacks, do they all get there? Is there a supplemental jurisdiction under this lottery idea? Oh well, and I guess I have to answer that because mm. this is my proposal. Make <laughs> to make everything a lottery. <laughs> you like it? Um, right. I just, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, I th- those are interesting subsidiary questions. I, I, I think the, uh, on the, t- to the degree that one finds the argument about the the distorting effects of cert on the court's informational base about the work of the federal judiciary generally, to the extent that you find that compelling, and I actually found it quite intriguing, um, I think having more lottery-driven stuff than less makes sense to me. Like, it, because they're, the lottery is the way you get stuff in there that's just the meat and potatoes of what co- federal courts do. Right. I mean... Um, well, and I think there's a lot of upside to that. I could, I'd certainly be intrigued to hear, you know, Dan, what you would think about, for example, having the lottery be the default and the cert docket be the one that's like, okay, it's like you get 15 cases a year that you can pick. The rest we sort of fill in at random, for example. Like, is it important? I, I don't think it's important necessarily to your claim that the lottery docket be smaller than the cert docket. You could imagine reversing those proportions, right? Yeah, not yeah, totally. I mean, I think part of the reason the proposal uh, is structured as it is is to try to, you know, it's, it's kind of a kooky proposal and we don't necessarily expect anyone to take it up anytime soon, but at least to try to make it seem like something that you could, in some plausible universe, convince the justices to do on their own rather than just sort of foisting on them uh, because they have lots of ways, you know, even if you give them jurisdiction, they have lots of ways of sort of getting rid of that jurisdiction. So, you know, I think that wouldn't be a crazy way to have the system work, to have more lottery cases and a smaller number of cert cases. And I think I would like that. I think in part the proposal, and this is still a work in progress, so it's, you know, we might, Will and I might change um, how we think about that over time. But right now the proposal is framed as it is to sort of say, look, guys, you can basically keep doing what you're doing. Let's just fill in a few of these. And, and, you know, you might, might seem a little crazy to you, but it actually would enable you to do things you really want to do more effectively, such as resolve important issues of law and, you know, supervise the lower courts. How many of the cases that people, you know, on which people petition for cert, and you probably don't have the number, but what's your sense were pretty obvious, um, unanimous panel opinions. Oh, hmm. um, you know, a fairly high number, but the thing is things that's, 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 I think my, my point is that are, is that some things that seem like that at first glance, when you actually get everybody in the room, you get your nine clerks doing your bench memo and you have people doing really good briefs and you have an oral argument and you have all the justices there. It turns out that things that seem obviously right are obviously wrong. Mm -hmm. And I saw this, I'm sure you saw this all the time, Ian, is that there's there's some way in which I genuinely believe, you know, the court is not just more infallible because it's higher in the hierarchy, but it's actually is is in some objective sense better at answering legal Mm -hmm. questions because of its institutional Mm -hmm. capacities. And so, uh, you know, my belief is that there's some things that come in the door and just, you know, you look at them. Oh, there's no split. Seems sensible. And then if you actually really dig yeah. in and take the time to really do what the court does, which is, you know, spend a lot of time thinking about hard issues, uh, that it turns out that 
maybe the whatever what everyone thought was right is not the right answer. Yeah, but my, what I'm wondering though is is we we know that that when you really dig in, you find these interesting issues as to cases in which you dig in and you find those really interesting issues, right? And is that you know have we done? I mean, it, maybe you have an intuitive sense from from having done it, but would that be true if you pick cases at random, um, especially when the the cost to petition uh, uh, for cert is way lower? Because you know who's going to? I assume that people aren't going to spend a lot of time writing um, cert petitions and and teeing up the issues in a way. I mean, you're going to be basically going off of lower court rulings, mm-hmm. um, and, and maybe some record, or maybe you can you know, maybe you would write a page or two. Uh, so facts. I'm not sure how that would exactly work. Yeah. So but, that's, yeah. that's that's a good question. So one thing we're, we're toying with uh, in the final draft, you know, when we work towards the final draft, of the paper is maybe sort of having an appendix where we just pick a bunch of judgments at random and sort of go through and sort of say some things about them. Um, my intuition is that there are more sort of hidden and interesting issues out there than people tend to assume, and that even in cases that are getting dealt with, you know, I saw this all the time when I was clerking in the Fourth Circuit getting dealt with um, by staff attorneys in short, unpublished per curiam opinions, there are sort of, you know, implicit assumptions there that are maybe not as correct as people think they are. And that if people dug into them, they might figure out some things that were wrong. And I certainly saw this when I was, you know, when I was clerking, we saw things that came in by cert petitions because one of the litigants felt sort of aggrieved, but you know, it didn't come close to meeting the criteria. Unpublished per curiam opinion, no split, no precedent created, um, no important legal issue, but just sort of, uh, you know, an application of a standard in a in a very, you know, biased way or very skewed way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that seeing that some of the time, it could be helpful for the court and could be helpful for the law. Now, Dan, I want to ask you about a marginal effect in lower court mm-hmm. judge behavior that I think it, it, you're, the point you just made uh, it, it, uh, is a nice segue to. So, so it seems to me one effect at the margin would be uh, that uh, dissents at the courts of appeals would get more frequent uh, and that district court judges would, at the margin, be more likely to write a, an elaborate opinion. Uh, because to the degree that the lottery is a feeder into the court's work. Judges would, and it's the flip side of the accountability argument you make mm-hmm. in the in the piece. Um, uh, judges are going to know, hey, this is my shot. Like I might actually get this issue in front of the court uh, if, if I write a if I write a persuasive dissent about something that I that I feel uh, passionately about, uh, and this case happens to get picked, um, then I'm at the table in a way that I wouldn't be if I don't write it. Uh, so do, do you have thoughts about those marginal effects in the lower courts? And, and the reason why I think those are interesting mm-hmm. effects, uh, in addition to the sort of ventilating of some of the more interesting issues that, that you might imagine are out there in the world that we just don't know about yet. Um, but it, it will also, or both of those effects would slow litigation down. That's interesting. So I hadn't really thought about those particular effects on um, judge behavior beyond our hope that this would increase uh, accountability. Now, I think one of the weaknesses of the proposal and something that we're still thinking about is, you know, look, how many lottery cases would it take to actually mm-hmm. meaningfully increase yeah. accountability that was my if question. the lower court judges yeah. are deciding thousands and thousands of opinions? The fact that there's now a 1% chance or a 0.1% chance, does that really matter? I mean, my tentative answer to that is 
well, you know, maybe it's embarrassing enough to have the court take one of these cases on the off chance. So you think about it a little bit more carefully. But I mean, if that's true, I tend to think for the most part, um, those things strike me as benefits if it means that, in fact, direct benefits, uh, the, the accountability benefits we were talking about, that if there are cases where lower court judges think their decisions are wrong, but are just signing off because they think no one's going to be checking their homework, then they should be dissenting. Um, you know, I, I think that obviously there are some limitations on the ability of lower courts to, you know, write reasoned opinions in every cases. They are a little bit overloaded, and that's why they tend to rely on staff attorneys and having their sort of whole separate uh, docket of unpublished opinions. But, you know, if that's if that's what it's going to create, uh, that seems like a benefit. Um, you know, if if that means that if, if it's actually the case that having judges give the appropriate level of attention to every case slows cases down to a pace that isn't tolerable, well, then I guess we need more federal judges or we need some way to figure out how to reduce federal litigation. Well, if, you right? had, if you had a Supreme Court of 17 sitting in panels of three, maybe their capacity is a thousand cases a year. I'm, I'm yeah, not that's, sure. it's, yeah, that's true. It's larger. But but even still, mm-hmm. so how many how many cert petitions are there? Is it three, five thousand? Se- se- seven or eight thousand okay. in a yeah. given year. So, so that would be substantial. However, the the number of cert petitions I think is a very small fraction of the it's number. It's about a of, tenth, right, of, Dan? Uh, final decision. Yeah, yeah. I think there's something like fifty to sixty thousand final judgments in the lower courts, if I'm remembering the number correctly. So, I mean, it's 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 not a very it's not a tiny fraction, um, but there are many more lower court judgments. So, the most um, you could hope for is about a two percent review rate. Yes, which is still, you know, better than, you know, the way it works now, which is that outside of certain categories of cases, you can sort of think, I am going to be the last word. If you're a court of appeals judge, you think, you know, this is, we're dealing with this, you know, random, you know, civ pro summary judgment issue. We're writing an unpublished opinion. Nobody's dissenting. We really are the Supreme Court as far as these litigants are concerned. It'd be interesting to know whether it whether a 2% rate is enough to have a marginal effect, it might be. I don't, I don't, I don't One thing know. I'd be curious about your reaction to, Dan, that I just sort of thought of listening to you is I'd be curious about the effect of certifying, uh, say, a random, you know, three to five cases a year from the United States Supreme Court to, for example, an in-bank court of appeals for final resolution. You know, in other words, making the judgments of the Supreme Court randomly reviewable by other courts to increase the quality of their work product. Like, obviously, they're not going to impose that on themselves. But, you know, this effect of the quality of your work goes down if you know that there's no one who can check it. I'd be curious about mechanisms to implement that for courts of last resort. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's 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 a really interesting proposal. And I I would like it or something like it um, in the sense that I do think the justices, you know, wouldn't be a bad thing for them to have a little bit more humility. I mean, obviously, I'm not Saying personally, I, you know, I, I think the justices uh, are generally good people, and I love love my justice. But I generally. do think that having a job okay. where basically you get to do whatever you want, no one criticizes you, um, no one can. I mean, no one, no one, no one. You know, with any power over you criticizes mm-hmm. you. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure that that's. You know, we want to have people with that kind of power. You know, let them decide the most important issues of the day. So well, I don't think it would this? be. How yeah. about eleven Supreme Court justices, where, where uh, every year six uh, lower court justice uh, judges ride supreme? Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah, I think it's a you know the w- one thing that I think is so neat about Dan's paper is it lays out so- the structural um, um, 
uh, Dan and your co-author, William Ortman. Yeah, and Will, Will Ortman. Yeah, I just want to make sure to give a, a, a shout out to my uh, former colleague uh, at the Clemenco Fellowship, uh, Will Ortman, uh, teaches at Wayne State, a very good friend of mine. Yeah, and, it, and, and so you, this paper that the two of you have done, um, which lays out a kind of a structural and case-centered approach to the issues. I mean, what Christian's question was just raising what, what are some of the other approaches I was thinking of, which are person-centered, not case-centered. So his example, and there's a more mild version, which would just be you, you create two open seats on the court, so it has 11 members, and, and people rotate through those two seats. And you could do, they could just be lower court judges chosen at random, and you could even choose two judges for each sitting of any term, right? So you could rotate how many times do they sit a term? Seven? Yeah. Uh, seven, yeah, seven, seven months. So basically. you've got 14 lower court judges who are rotating it through there. And because there's two of them and the number gets to 11, now the coalitions of the court could be less predictable. And I think people would brief cases differently. And even if everything else about the court remained the same, cert jurisdiction, mm-hmm. and, you know, so you're choosing cases you ultimately won't get the same influence and outcome for. Yeah. Uh, because there'll be two other judges there hearing the case along with you, and it there'll be different be, courts of judges. Could just be chief judges. I mean, there there are ways to do it, which try you know, you're taking advantage of various kinds of informational inputs, mm-hmm. right? And, yeah, and if they're more yeah. senior judges, you get more people with more experience, and da da da. But yeah. but but these person centered approaches are are trying to get some of the same benefits, but in a diff, from a different point. I, of I view. think that's that's that that's really interesting. I do think it's interesting because it makes me think about the different the way it feels different to brief a case at the court of appeals versus the supreme court. You know, usually this isn't always true, but almost always in the courts of appeals, you don't know who your panel is going to be when you're writing the briefs, right? So you've pretty right. much just got to write it, you know, you got to write it straight, uh, and you can't really play to any particular people or anything like that. Whereas at the supreme court, you know, it's going to be these nine people sitting in your case, and you you know you sort of conduct your strategy uh, appropriately. And I do think that there is something more appealing to me intuitively uh, about the former, about, you know, not knowing, I mean, you know, in the Fourth Circuit, you don't know who your panel is going to be until the day of argument, right? So you can't even, you can't even focus your argument prep on who the judges are going to be, uh, which is really an extreme example of it. And there's something that, yeah, I don't know, maybe this is just a sort of misplaced emotional uh, attachment to something that feels more pure, but it does feel different. I think, yeah, I think that's really interesting too. And I think it also just sort of highlights why I think Thinking about these questions is so fun because there's really endless variations. And, you know, this particular paper, we came up with one particular solution. And I think, you know, I think people, you know, kind of like it uh, just because it's such a such a weird idea and it's sort of different than the way we totally do things. But there's no way, no reason to stop there. And also, it's sort of the solution that you pick really turns uh, a lot on what actually the problem is that you're trying to resolve. And right. you know, we sort of pick a few, you know, the course misses important issues, a lack of accountability, and so forth. But there are other problems. There's no there's no end of problems you could identify with the Supreme Court. Uh, humility. They're not humble enough. <laughs> they have too much power. Uh, and that tinkering with the way they select cases, who gets to hear those cases, when they get to hear those cases, how they write the opinions, all of things, these things that are potentially um, subject to democratic control, to return to a theme the, of, of Ian's, um, you know, these things are all tweakable and, mm-hmm. um, there's no, there's no one obvious answer for why they should be any particular way. Now, one curious omission from the paper, um, and, and it's curious to me for a few reasons, uh, and I'll, and I'll start with the fact that I love it when you two snark on the federal circuit, uh, <laughs> in your show, because I'm a, uh, because I'm a federal, a former federal circuit clerk. 
Um, uh, and I think all of the snark is entirely deserved. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. Um, As we always say, if you yeah, want to hide something uh, from the federal circuit, put it in a law book. Oh, Ooh. boom. Ooh. Unless it's that treatise, that treatise oh, that yeah, they that, love. Yeah, that, right? That over, overrides that, that text. treatise. I forget what it's called. Yeah, that. Don Chisholm's the, uh, treatise. Yeah. The, the guy, who, like, the guy, who, the the guy who drafted yeah. the statute. Yeah. They love. Yeah. Oh, no. Oh, you're talking about the uh, PJ Federico's yeah. commentary. Yeah, Federico. yeah, 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 yeah. The thing that overrides the, the yeah. plain text <laughs> until it doesn't, of course. Yeah. So I thought it was curious uh, in light of your, uh, clearly you're aware of the court and you're aware of it to the point where you can uh, uh, smack it with well-deserved snark. Um, I thought it was curious that, that your paper omits discussion of the one court of appeals that is by definition splitless. Uh, and moreover, um, uh, at a time when the Supreme Court's been granting review in patent cases increasingly, the rolling five-year average on patent case grants is now at a level that it hasn't been since the 1940s. So it seems to be an instance where the court is identifying a set of cases as important, where the mm-hmm. split mechanism is completely unavailable. Now there's an alternative mechanism, and John Duffy's written about this, that the Solicitor General's office is playing a role with the CVSG procedure mm. of kind of creating mm-hmm. not a split exactly, but a very strong signal about importance. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a good point. And it's something that actually I had to go, to go check just now because I sort of, I, I think we intended to talk a little bit about the federal circuit. We do have a very, very short part of the paper where we talk about kinds of issues where splits uh, don't emerge, but that's a place where, you know, for the next draft, it would be appropriate to, to spend a little bit of time talking about that. So, you know, in, it is true that they're not only relying on splits and they do figure out other ways to find indicators of importance. But I think that with the federal circuit, it may have taken them a little while to sort of figure that out. And now Definitely. the federal circuit has lost so much credibility at the court yeah. uh, that they're actually <laughs> sort of especially eager to take their cases. Um, but, you know, that that itself, you know, requires the court to be, you know, pretty attentive to what's going on there. And there's it's not at all obvious that they can do that with every court of appeals, with every issue, give it sort of that little level of extra scrutiny when there isn't a split there. Right. I think that another area that, that it might be interesting for you to look at if it, in terms of the next draft is, my recollection is that there is a sort of strong, a, a stronger than normal norm against creating a split in tax cases. Hmm. Uh, and interesting that that might be a, a a thing where it's specific enough that that you know all the arguments you make in the paper about why judges might be disinclined to create splits for 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 reasons that you could question uh you know some of them are good some of them are bad and and you certainly don't want people strate- strategizing about splits in a way that suggests they're they're not doing their best to decide the case as well as they can um but tax cases is one where my recollection is the jurisprudence is very explicit in tax cases that circuit splits are to be avoided to an extraordinary degree do people write more concurrences in wow. in tax cases uh, what would be the justification um, for that yeah that that i that, I, 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 I you learn something every day cuz i've never heard that it's, heard it's, a, it's a yeah. it's a uniformity it, it might and you might call it fetishization but it's a, but the I, the argument as i recall it is um, a a a, uni- a level of uniformity is required in tax that that is sort of the ultra ultra uh-huh. version of the uniformity argument the, the for federal law in general. The incentives on behavior are direct and and obvious in tax, and so people will move around. It may, 
I, I think maybe by creating a split, you're forcing the Supreme Court's hand in a way that you aren't another. You can't just let that split linger without people moving around, taking advantage of different. That's a good point. Rules, although, right? there, yes, and it's come. I think it's made more complex by the fact that you know you've got um, there are different jurisdictional pathways. So you've got if you don't pay the tax. Uh, versus you pay it and sue for a refund. The latter goes through the Court of Federal Claims in the Federal Circuit uh, under the Tucker mm-hmm. Act. Uh-huh. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, we just a case you could look at, Dan, is Washington Energy. It's a case from the mid-90s at the Federal Circuit that that goes through some of these uh, concepts. And of course, that's 20 years old now. But um, uh, but but yeah, the, the tax matter is one that splits. Uh, the, 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 the possibility of a split is itself the subject of jurisprudence. I had, well, I didn't know that, so this is going to be yeah, very, and very Dan, helpful. Do you, do you remember listening to that makes me remember very dimly um, that there is some substantive rule that I think may involve, it may involve the D.C. Circuit, it may be a rule of the D.C. Circuits or some other circuit with respect to the D.C. Circuit about, like, we don't disagree with, like, this court of appeals on this kind of issue unless there's basically, like, a really good reason. Do you remember what I'm talking about? This is a thing that is out there. I think it might be, like, maybe it's, oh. you know, I mean, I've heard I've heard that there's sort of informal things like that where other courts of appeals defer to the Second Circuit on business. Yeah, but this law is issues. a more formalized version. I didn't of realize it. that there was sort of oh, that's is, interesting. Is that, that's, we need like we need DC, to run that down. Is this like a DC Circuit review of of district? Um, what is it? The you know the local cases that come up through the district. Maybe do they defer? Maybe I mean, were they are like the Supreme Court of the District of Columbia? Yeah, no, I, I think it's um, not that, although that would be interesting to look at too. But like, as, this is, I mean, it, it's such a dim recollection that it's like a totally unhelpful sort of, you know, comment for revision. <laughs> just like, yeah, just like somewhere in the federal reporter, I think there's some, some stuff about that. You guys should really read it. Um, but I remember being sort of surprised by it too, on the ground that like, like, wow, what is this? Like, we're sort of like designating like an expert court for these matters now. That's weird. It's interesting too how the federal circuit is a little bit more the 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 court of federal claims federal circuit supreme court pathway is much more like state courts totally right because they have they're they're each you know that there's only one court to go through for a lot of different kinds of claims yeah and so I wonder looking at if looking at state supreme court cert practices you know where you where you don't maybe maybe they were I guess there's there are many state supreme courts that only have one appellate court mm-hmm. right they don't have mm-hmm. appellate court so there there aren't the yeah. possibility of splits. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of them take, although some of them take uh, cases directly from trial courts. I, mean, I remember Connecticut did that, right? So you, if if, you, uh, if the Supreme Court thinks the case is important enough, it will just take it right up and away from the appellate court before it can rule. But I feel yeah. like I'm about to lose the the the, the clock is ticking and the window oh, is closing, and I've got a uh, I've got the chance to ask Dan about Erie. Oh oh. So so Dan, uh, I take it you would, w- w- but I'll, so so my guess would be that you would say. Uh, that uh, federal appellate cases that are in federal court only because of diversity, where the main mm-hmm. thing going on in the case is a state law a rule of decision. Um, I take it you would not want those put in the lottery. Or would you? That's interesting. Um, that's something, this is one of the things on our to-do list to try to figure out what to, what to think about that. Um, it's so you wouldn't get some of the benefits that we identify um, from such cases uh, in the sense uh, that, you know, the court wouldn't be, the court isn't supposed to be resolving important issues of state law because they're not the final authority on those issues. Um, but even so, it's not obvious to me that you wouldn't get any of the benefits that we identify in the sense that in resolving cases like that, 
there may be important federal law issues that come up um, in the interstices and, you know, questions about how do you do the analysis? How do you do the eerie guess, right? Mm. Um, in a situation where maybe you don't have a clear and binding uh, opinion from the highest court of the state, where not obvious to me that the court's guidance wouldn't be helpful to sort of say, hey, lower courts, here's the best version of how you play this game. Um, here's what we do. Here's how we're going to try to answer these questions. Not because the court's mm -hmm. resolution of that particular question of Illinois contract law is so important, but because the court would be showing as an exemplar, here's how to do that process. Here's that the best is, way to do that. That itself is part of federal jurisprudence. Yeah, that is part of federal law. Um, and that would be, you know, that could be quite helpful. To maybe, maybe preferable, though, to through some combination of federal and state law to make every judgment on state law potentially appealable to a state Supreme Court, right? R rather than certification beforehand. So well, that, I mean, I, I, yeah. why, do, why, do you, why do you need that, though? I mean, because, I mean, already, you know, federal, federal courts are deciding issues of state law in ways that, you know, the highest court of the state might disagree with if they were faced with it. You know, where they have to make these guesses, and sometimes they make those guesses incorrectly. So not obvious why, you know, the Supreme Court can't be getting those guesses wrong once in a while, too, because the, the state high courts will get a chance to decide the issue eventually. It's funny because it raises a, a, a deeper question about Erie itself, uh, about the degree to which you think there might be a hazard in the public perceiving the Supreme Court of the United States as becoming a, a general common law court. Mm. Uh, and so Erie's insistence mm -hmm. that there is no general federal common law, uh, does that have a prophylactic layer around it that would, that would scare you away from <laughs> including them in the lottery? Uh, it's actually a kind of interesting thought yeah. about Erie that, itself. That, that is interesting, although there are other situations where the court does do common law reasoning, places, you know, antitrust cases where, sure. you know, we've just accepted that the court is, is doing common law type analysis. And those don't, seem to, those don't seem to hurt the court's image uh, in the public any more than anything else it does, or right? basically all of First Amendment law. Yeah. I mean, yeah, but they can point to very clear federal delegations of that, you know, the Sherman Act mm -hmm. is there, right? And so they mm -hmm. can say we're elaborating, even though they actually come out and say in Legion, uh, uh, the, the resale price maintenance case, um, you know, the Sherman Act is literally a common law delegation to the federal courts, uh, which I, I found a little surprising that they said it that baldly, but, but they did. And so, you know, the Sherman Act is there, though. Like, you can point to it and say, no, there's no problem. It's not inconsistent with Erie. There's a federal statute here that we're elaborating on. Okay. Um, whereas if what you're doing is, you know, a UCC case from Wisconsin, mm -hmm. really? <laughs> but, well, I mean, but courts of appeals do that all the time. I, I don't understand why it's more illegitimate for the Supreme Court to be doing that if other federal courts have to do it it's, as part would, of their daily not, not illegitimate, daily but less lives. beneficial. Yeah, right? I wouldn't have used the word illegitimate. I, I would simply yeah. I would simply say the symbolism is different. Uh that that when you got the highest court which which felt it was important for its continued institutional role in the 1930s to affirmatively turn away from this vision of the Supreme Court being the general common law, the mm -hmm. highest general common law court of the United States, like it affirmatively rejected that future. Um, yes, yeah. Although I, so, I would be curious, know, doesn't it turn on how it's doing the analysis? I mean, if they're just saying we are trying to figure out what the state high court would say, yeah, no, I think you know, we're make, being very humble. It's, it's different than us saying, you know, we get to make general law. Sorry, but sorry, Ian, I, well, I mean, the, the, I would be curious actually if it. 
I wonder if the public at large aren't basically more common law thinkers than sort of statutory, you know, positive law thinkers to begin with. You know, I think when most people think about the work of courts, they think about it doing common law work already, right? Uh, you know, this is a thing I find as a lawyer all the time when you discuss things um, about the Supreme Court's work is that people do not typically start by instinct with like the text of the Constitution, right? That's just not how they reason. They reason in a very common law way. Uh, and so I'm not so sure that any damage is there to be done because I'm not sure that that's not how they already <laughs> think about what the court does. And, and they may not be totally inaccurate about that, especially in constitutional cases. Wow. It's just kind of weird to think about the Supreme Court. I mean, to think about two layers of court, each thinking about what another court would do were it confronted with it when that court is available, you know, to ask. It's just a certification issue. Yeah, like you mm-hmm. sort of, but, but maybe post-certification, which is just appeal. Yeah, but I mean, right now, district courts have to do it, and then courts of appeals get to redo that analysis. So it's just adding one more step. It's not, it's not fundamentally changing the way that yeah. process works. Yeah, right. So, Christian, you would have joined uh, Justice Sotomayor's uh, musings in that recent New York credit card case, right? Um, I, I thought it was amazing that she wrote a, uh, as much as she did about the the, cert- the failure to certify being the source of the harm in that mm-hmm. case. Expressions hair design, yeah. yeah. I mean, Expressions hair design, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think my judge wrote a piece um, not too long ago about, you know, making federalism work better. And, and one way is like you know, the whole EDPA thing is a disaster, I think, for federal law. But, um, uh, but you can make it work better by giving states greater authority over state law yeah. um, and, and really involving them in the process by having fewer federal cl- crimes. There's all kinds of things you can do to try to make that, you know, to get each institution doing what it does best or at least focusing on developing competencies in areas where it could perform best. Mm-hmm. And so this is why, like, you know, certification is one answer, but then I also don't see why you wouldn't just allow appeal. Like you get a judgment from a federal circuit court on purely on an issue of state law. Oh, why can't you take an appeal why, to the state Supreme Court? Right. That, that would seem to be, a, you know, then you would have that potential. You get a lot of the benefits. Oh, so it's kind of, it's kind of, of like reverse certification in that like the state, right. the state presumably could just elect to take the case exactly. rather than having to exactly. wait for it to be handed to them. That's an interesting idea. Right. Which, which gets some of the benefits of the lottery docket, you know, but, but you're getting the right court. But to, why get the court of appeals opinion in that instance at all then? Like why even bother? They should just, you know, they should just transfer it. Well, but, uh, well. Because now you've got a federal advisory opinion that binds yeah, nobody guess, about nothing. Yeah, I, I guess that's, you know, right, right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so either there, you know, it, it depends on how you got federal jurisdiction in the first place. And I guess my solution takes There may be a bunch of federal issues or federal claims in the case, too. I mean, yeah. usually, usually they're in federal court for, you know, maybe it's diversity, but maybe there's a pendant federal claim or, you know. To, to, to give the state Supreme Court final authority over a diversity case would seem at odds with the reasons for diversity. But, 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 <laughs> yes, but, it would. <laughs> but if it's, if it's a supplemental jurisdiction sort of thing, then, then it seems not at all at odds with that. So, yeah, and, and state yeah, courts, I, I mean, they, state courts are of general jurisdiction. Nothing prevents them from ruling on federal claims. It's just they usually don't because people remove them. Right. But they could. Right. Yeah. Huh. Wow. Are we going to do more? <laughs> Have we done enough for today? Sure. I, we, we could have you guys where, on. Where, every, where every are week. we on the page of notes? How many, how many, how many, you know, oh. things have we worked through uh, on that page? We, I, th- I think it's grown to three pages by yeah, now. We, we've hit, a, <laughs> we've hit a few good highlights and I, I just love that I got to ask you my questions. 
Well, you guys are great for uh, agreeing to come on and and to take take time out of your busy schedule and your 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 Patreon. Uh, um, this uh, this is a this is a big moment for us. Our first like podcast crossover. Yeah. I feel like this is a rite of passage. <laughs> this is yeah, it's big. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. Thanks for having us on. Um, you know, this is a it's it's been a fun fun chat. I love it. So we will put a link, obviously, to First Mondays in the in the show notes. But it seems like why everybody knows First Mondays. Yeah, like, well, that's, that's going to help our SEO. So that's that's, that's gonna right. Be great. That's, that's right. <laughs> yeah, high quality links. Yeah, well, we come we've come full circle at this point. So you guys have just finished up. I mean, the the oral arguments uh, for the for the season. Mm-hmm. Basically, the the oral argument season has 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 wound up in the Supreme Court. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, we're not yet to the kind of. Um, the off season yet because they're busily writing opinions. So there's a lot more you guys are going to be discussing in the next, uh, in the next couple of months, especially when the big, big cases come down. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of reason to keep listening to first Monday. Absolutely. And we'll, we'll be going over the summer. Uh, we'll be at a reduced schedule over the summer. We're going to have just two normal episodes a month over the summer. Uh, but yeah, this is kind of the nice part of the year where we don't have to read any more briefs. Um, because you, you know, reading mm-hmm. those briefs and, and like sort of listening to the arguments and stuff it takes a long time. Uh, but now we can just sort of read the opinions, yeah. look at the grants and kind of riff on stuff, uh, which is a lot easier. Uh, so, um, <laughs> you know, it's going to be, you know, it's, we're not fully wearing the Bermuda shorts yet, but you know, we're, we're, we're pulling them on. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Well, thank you guys so much. And, uh, hopefully we'll be able to do this again soon. Thanks for having us. Take care. Yeah. You guys are the best.